Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Uh, I'm going to invite you to remain standing if you're able. If you're not able, because it is a long reading, um, feel free to, um, to have a seat. But uh, just to, to honor the reading of God's word, we'll remain standing for, for our passage. Now, I'm going to quickly read, and, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll, I'll explain why in just a second. I'm going to quickly read just the first three chapters of, of the Gospel of Matthew, and then we will jump over to Genesis 38. So this is the word of the Lord, first of all, from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Then Genesis chapter 38, beginning at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Then Onan also dies, and we'll skip ahead to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave him to her and went into her. She conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. She was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet. And the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This has been the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
It's always comforting to read everyone's favorite Christmas story. <laughs> right? You know, this being the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I know that, that many of us have begun to allow ourselves to start thinking about Christmas. We decorated our house uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Music is now allowed. Um, we, we now permission to play Christmas music in my house. I know some of you have already been listening to Christmas music, but you're weird. Now is the time to, to do everything in moderation, especially, especially Christmas. All the stores that haven't Christmified themselves, they've, they've now caught up. And of course, in the church, we begin to start thinking about what really is a, a spectacular time in our history, in this world, which is when God assumed human flesh. He became man. Uh, it is significant to stop and at least contemplate that mystery and that reality, which is really our hope. This is the season of Advent, which always reminds us that we are a waiting people because God's people are always a waiting people. The Old Testament saints, they longed for God's promised Messiah. They were waiting. And we too long for Israel's Messiah, our Messiah Jesus. He has come, but of course, it's not the end of the story, right? We long uh, we wait for him to come again and to make all things new. Now back to our story, right? When you think of stories in the Bible that are going to get us in this kind of Christmas mood, uh, do you normally start with Tamar and Judah? And the answer is probably not, right? What a place to begin the Advent season. Nothing says Merry Christmas like Genesis 38. And yet here's, here's the thing. My goal this morning is that I don't think the story of Tamar and Judah should be our, our number one Christmas story, but I do hope that we'll see it's a very fitting Christmas story. See, this Advent season, we will be looking at the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. That's why I started there, and that's part of the Bible that we skip over. We, we skim past it, understandably so, right? It's, it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. We have these lists of names, which isn't the most gripping material, but if you do just skip over these genealogies, you do miss something really profound, and Matthew's genealogy in particular is really unique. So remember, the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing his gospel to a predominantly Jewish audience. That means that throughout his writing, all of his explanations and elaborations and references are sort of directed toward a Jewish audience. And his purpose, and you can already see it in the genealogy, his purpose is to show that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited, long-expected Messiah. He's the real deal. And so the genealogy traces Jesus back to King David, Israel's greatest king. Prior to David, Matthew links Jesus to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Jesus is legitimate. That's the point. He has this deep connection to the people and history of Israel. He's not Superman, right? Superman's a kind of Christ figure. He comes to save a people, but Superman literally just falls out of the sky. He falls from Krypton to the earth. Jesus does not fall from the sky, does he? He's born to a very particular people and a very particular history. But Matthew's genealogy also does something kind of weird, and that's what we're going to focus in on over the next few weeks. Because amidst all of these important names, all of these important men in Israel's history, and at that point that would seem like a pretty normal genealogy, you have four women who are sprinkled in this list. Four mothers of Jesus who are listed. 
right? A genealogy would, would ordinarily be traced through the father's line, and that's what we have here. But we have the, these four mothers of Jesus who are, are given to us as well. And if you know your Old Testament, these four women are not the ones that you might expect to be listed if we're trying to make this claim for legitimacy to Israel's great King Jesus, the long-awaited king. There are a couple of reasons for this. Aside from Tamar, all of the women have some kind of connection outside of Israel. They are connected to the Gentile world. So you have Ruth. She is a Canaanite. Or Rahab is a Canaanite. Ruth, she is a Moabite. And then you have Bathsheba, who probably was an Israelite, but she's identified as, first of all, as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a non-Israelite. So do you hear that? They had these ties to the Gentile world. And then secondly, these are women with remarkable baggage. I mean, wasn't, this is our story, isn't it? A story of scandal, a story of, of, of baggage that we have to rummage through. These just aren't the stories you would expect in the lineage of, of Israel's expectant Messiah and King Jesus. So we have our story. That's scandalous enough, as we just read. Rahab is a prostitute. Ruth is a vulnerable refugee who comes from a people, the Moabites, who are known for scandal. They are associated with scandal. They are a byword of scandal. And then you have Bathsheba, which the Bible keeps coming back to as David's low point as a king because instead of serving the people as the shepherd, he sees what he wants, Bathsheba bathing, he takes and he gets what he wants regardless of the consequences. So these are hard stories. And here's the thing. This genealogy preaches. Why these four women? Because Jesus is Israel's king, but he is also the king for the nations. And also, these are just the kinds of people that Jesus came to save. So we read already this morning, we're looking at the story of Tamar and Judah. This is a story of scandalous grace, a story of a woman who boldly acts out of self-preserving desperation. It's the story of a broken and disgraced and shameful man, Judah, who is in need of redemption. Two points this morning as we trace this story. We're going to look at the righteousness of Tamar. That's the climax of the story is when Judah says, you are more righteous than I. And then we'll look at the redemption of Judah. And if there was a third point, it would be how does this story resonate into our stories? Because it does. It means something for us. All right, so first of all, let's look at the righteousness of Tamar. This is an amazing story. Uh, you know, most of us go, go on Netflix looking for some kind of drama to entertain us, or we, we, we go to, to movie theaters. Um, it's my job this morning to, to really try to convince you the Bible is an amazing book because this story is as gripping as anything you would find in a movie theater. I have to prove that. That's my task this morning. So you have Tamar. Tamar is a young woman. She's married to Judah's son, Er. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law, all right? So his son, Er, married to Tamar, he is a wicked man, and the Lord puts him to death. That's all we know about Er. He's put to death. So Tamar's a widow, and so Judah steps in, her father-in-law, and he marries her off to Er's brother. So this would be the second son, Onan. So far, so good. This is a just thing. This was a way of providing for Tamar and providing for the family line. Er's family line would continue through his brother, and he would provide a safety net for a widow, Tamar. This is kind of like ancient social security. 
And don't think of these brothers living in different places. It basically means she's going to continue in the life that she has signed up for or their family signed up for when she married heir. All right, so this is the way a widow would be provided for if this option was available because widows don't have any other option in this society. Tamar can't go get a job after her husband dies. She can't go uh, own land. This was the provision for her to basically continue in the family, to have a family of her own into the family that she's married into. So Judah follows the custom. It later becomes a law in the book of Deuteronomy in marrying Tamar to the next son in line, from heir to Onan, as a way to provide for her and protect her. The thing is, Onan does not want to have children with her because those children would belong to heir's family line, and so he too is a wicked man, and the Lord puts him to death. Now this is where it gets dramatic. How old do you think Tamar is after Onan dies? What would you guess? I would guess she's not even 20 years old. She might be 20, but I would guess she's in her late teens and she is twice widowed. And so after Onan dies, Judah's response is, there is no way I am marrying her to my third son, Shelah. She is a black widow, right? I just keep sending my sons to her and they just keep dying. This is, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm losing my third son to this lady, whatever her issue is. And so here's the thing, Tamar, go back home. When Shelah's old enough, then you guys can get married. But we're told in the text, he has no intention of following through with this. There's something wrong with her. And so we need to see this, this difficult position that Tamar is in. Because she realizes that, that she has, uh, when she realizes he has no intention of fulfilling this commitment, she's without options. She can't make him do what's right. And so she does this bold and desperate act. She plans to sexually entrap her father-in-law. She takes off her, her clothes of mourning, uh, and, and that's a really important idea here. Think, think about this. She's probably late teens, early 20s, and she walks around in black all of the time. She is this physical embodiment of grief. That's how she would be known in town, right? Here's this young gal who, every time we see her, we'd look at her and say, you are a tragedy, you are a person that represents grief. But she takes off those clothes and she puts on the clothing of a prostitute. She puts a veil over her face and she goes to find Judah. And here's the thing. This is what's really interesting, isn't it? She knows what kind of guy Judah is. Think about that. She knows that if she goes and sits in a particular place and she dresses in a particular way, that Judah will not just walk by her, but she knows what kind of man Judah is. And sure enough, he's the kind of man she thought he was. To make matters worse, after Judah does what he does, to make matters worse, we're told in the narrative, right, that she's in this place of cultic prostitution. And so think of this sheep shearing festival as like a state fair, and you have these pagan kind of undertones of, of um, ritual fornication with temple prostitutes to kind of awaken the pagan gods of fertility to bless the year's crops. Does that make sense? And you kind of see this line throughout all of the Old Testament. You're trying to get those pagan gods of fertility active and engaged. And I think our point to notice here is Judah is not just an adulterer, but he's also an adulterer, an idolater. Everything about this scene so far has shown us that this is the chosen family of God, and yet there is horrific moral decline. As he leaves tomorrow, he says, you know, I don't have a goat to pay you, and so what, what can I do? And she says, give me your cord, signet ring, and staff. Uh, a Jewish scholar named Robert Alter says, it's the same thing as give me your car keys and wallet, and I'll hold these until you come back. 
When Judah sends the goat back to her for payment, she's gone, and no one knows anyone that fits the description of Tamar. And then fast forward three months, Tamar is pregnant, Judah finds out, and Judah's not just angry, he's over the top furious. He's in a blind rage. He demands that she be killed. Judah has so much power in this kind of society that he has power over her life. And then you have this incredibly dramatic exchange. She says, the man who has these things, the cord, signet ring, and staff, he is the father of the baby. And this is where the whole thing turns because Judas says something really peculiar. He thankfully doesn't lie. Think about it. He could have lied, right? He could have said, I don't know what you're talking about, but he doesn't. He doesn't say, why don't we just forget about this? This is, this is getting awkward. Let's just move on. Let bygones be bygones. He says, she is more righteous than I am. She is more righteous than I am. And maybe some of us go, that's, that's a strange word to use. Do we think of Tamar's actions as righteous? And I think the problem is that righteous is kind of a churchy word, and it can mean something to us like moral purity, but I don't think that's really what the text is saying. And I think in Hebrew, especially, that word for righteousness isn't so much about moral purity, but it's about justice. He doesn't say she did right and I did wrong. He says she is more righteous. Compared to her, I have done great evil. Compared to me, she is righteous. She is just. Now, why is he saying that? Because she is powerless. He has all the power. And in revealing Judah to be the father of the child, she exposes that this is all injustice. Tamar's desperate act is maybe the most unlikely way you could imagine. Uh, it, it reveals to Judah and he is able to see by God's grace that he has indeed failed to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. I know that justice is a loaded word in our culture. That's to our shame that it's a loaded word, right? We kind of get into our political silos and we say, no, justice can only mean this. It can't mean that. But we need the Bible to define justice for us, especially because it is such a central theme in Scripture, it's not a word that we can just get rid of. It's a word that we need to care about because God has revealed himself as a God of justice. And especially in the Old Testament, it would continue into the New, this word has a connotation of doing right in relationships, treating human beings as God would have us treat them. And here, here's where it come, kind of comes home, right? It's saying here are particular people who the world traditionally does not treat right. These are the kinds of people that are often not looked at as if they bear God's image. And it's typically four groups in the Old Testament. It's widows, orphans, the poor, and strangers. And God's people are commanded to do justice to these four groups. Over and over in the Bible, God evaluates his people according to whether or not they exercise justice toward these four groups. In fact, God identifies himself as one who has particular interest in these four groups, right? If you had a resume of God from the Old Testament, it would say almighty creator, Lord God, also defender of the fatherless, defender of the orphan, father of the fatherless. And he expects his people to do the same. I'm bringing all of this up because Tamar is confronting Judah with his profound injustice. He has power over her life to give her life, and yet he is allowing her to slip through the cracks. And mercifully, graciously, the blinders come off and Judah can see. Tamar is just. She is forcing Judah to do what is right. 
She is on the margins of society, and he is willing to use his power to destroy her. And yet she confronts him, and he is able to see the truth. And in the end, Tamar is righteous. She is just. But her actions aren't just about vindicating her as if she's falling through the cracks and then Judah can kind of fix that and heal that. It's not just what she's doing. She's also part of a redemption story. Judah's redemption story. That's our next point. That was Tamar's righteousness. This is Judah's redemption. Now when we talk about Judah, we need to situate him in the story of his life. Think of Genesis 38 is we are in the midst of a downward spiral of this guy Judah and we also hit rock bottom with him. Um, if you remember, Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. 12 sons of Jacob. And many of you know the story of Jacob and his sons, or at least, I think most of us hopefully at least know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and his, and his beautiful coat, right? The Broadway uh, amazing technicolor dream, uh, dream coat, right? Uh, so the story here is Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of his sons. 12 sons, he loves Joseph more than any of the other sons, Favoritism destroyed families back then like it still does, right? And there is rank favoritism in this family. Jacob dotes on Joseph. He brags on Joseph. He has this beautiful multicolored coat made for Joseph. And by the way, Joseph does nothing to help his cause. He seems kind of aloof. He keeps coming to his brothers saying, I had another dream. You guys are all going to bow down to me. So what happens? Well, the rest of the brothers hate him. And one day, they're all in the field. They see Joseph prancing around in his coat, and they plan to kill him. But Judah steps in, and he says, you know what would be better than killing Joseph? Let's make some money off of him. And they sell him into slavery. They take off his coat once he's gone to the slavers. And once he's gone, they dip the coat in goat's blood. They take it to their father, Jacob, and they ask Jacob, do you recognize the coat? And it destroys Jacob. You see how irrational this sin is. What did they think was going to happen to their family dynamics when the favorite son was killed? It's only bringing more destruction into this family. So that's the first part of Judah's downward spiral. Let's not murder my brother, right? Let's just sell him into slavery. The things continue. We just saw Tamar, this twice-widowed young woman. Uh, she is falling through the cracks of society. Judah is responsible for her. She is in his family, and he basically cuts her off. You won't have a family yourself. You won't be provided for. And then he thinks he's having a harmless tryst with a pagan cultic prostitute, but the path of destruction doesn't just end there, it keeps going. And so we hit the bottom at the end of our passage in Genesis 38, 24. Three months later, Judah is told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. In the Hebrew text, I think the emphasis here is how subhuman Judah is at this point. Because it could be written, bring her out and burn her to death, but it doesn't say that. It says two words. It says, bring, burn. That's Judah's response. Bring, burn. This is not normal behavior. This isn't even about achieving some idea of justice. This is cruelty. There's malice here. He wants her to suffer as she dies. And what I want us to think about with Judah is all of the anger of loss that he is experiencing, right? Getting rid of Joseph has only wrecked his family and his father further. 
Judah has his own grief. How was our text introduced? I don't think we read this. It's the beginning of 38 where Judah's wife has died. That's what introduces Genesis 38. And then he has two sons that have died. And they don't seem like great guys, right? But he's a father who probably loves his sons. And so, of course, he's dealing with the anger of loss there. He's overcome with grief. And all of this anger then is poured out on Tamar. And so, like all sin... It's just this ever-increasing snowball of destruction that just keeps acquiring more and more destructive mass. Sin has incredible inertia in our lives, right? It just keeps going, and it takes a lot to break out of the inertia of sin, and that's Judah's story. It just keeps going. It just keeps compounding. His bitterness and brokenness are increasing. He blames Tamar for his son's deaths, and so he's bitter toward her, but now that bitterness is hatred. And so the violence in this scene is remarkable because of all of the power that Judah has. But what I want us to see here is that there is something of a mirror to our own hearts. Judah kind of encapsulates that idea that that we hear often that hurt people do what? Hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That's Judah in a nutshell. And so our question is, do you recognize yourself in Judah? Judah. You don't have the power to just burn someone. That's good, right? But do you see his rage in you? Do you see his anger in you? How do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with grief? How do you deal with wrongs? And this is where I would, I would suggest that we too know this snowball of destruction. We know, I think you know what I mean when I say the inertia of sin. It's just this force that keeps coming. And it's hard to break out of. And so they drag her out to be burned. Judah is judge, jury, and executioner. There's no justice. But she's able to bring out Judah's wallet, his signet ring, cord, and staff. And she says, please identify these. Do you recognize these? The Hebrew phrase here is hekerna. I think the most wooden translation is identify now. Now, why is that interesting? Why am I bringing up this Hebrew phrase? Because in Genesis 37, one chapter before, Judah and his brothers go to Jacob with this goat blood-dipped coat of Joseph, and they bring it to their father, and they say, Hekerna, do you recognize this? Identify now. So our question is, does Judah recognize this phrase coming out of her lips as having so much meaning? And I think he does. It's why it breaks him. I don't think Judah hears from Tamar, do you recognize your stuff? I think he hears, do you recognize how far you have fallen? And then he says, Tamar, you are more righteous than I am. This is more than just the salvation of Tamar. This is the redemption of Judah. Judah's story isn't over. Again, if you know the story of Joseph, you know there will be a famine in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And there they encounter Pharaoh's right-hand man, who, of course, we know is Joseph. And he's difficult to deal with, isn't he? He's really awkward. And he treats his brothers harshly. And after being awkwardly wined and dined, the brothers are finally sold the grain. And as they're leaving, they're stopped by the court officials who find a cup from the court that has been stolen allegedly. And it's found in the sack of the youngest son, Benjamin. By the way, Jacob's new favorite son. (laughs) 
And Judah does something remarkable in this moment. He says, my life for his. He says, I'll stay, let him go. And so what we see in Judah's character, uh, character arc is that he's gone from a man who only cares about himself and his needs and his desires and his good to a man who will lay down his life for his brother. What happened to him? Redemption happened to him. He became a person who lays down his life for his brother. At the end of Genesis 38, we read that Tamar isn't just pregnant, right? She's got two. She's, she's got twins. She delivers the two sons. She names them Perez and Zerah. And it's a dramatic birth, right? One is Breach, Perez, who comes out first even though he's the second baby. And Perez in Hebrew means Breach or, or more often Breakthrough. And that's fitting, right? Because this story is a picture of the breakthrough of grace in Judah's life. Judah is redeemed by this breakthrough. It's a dramatic story, right? It's a memorable story. If you are not familiar with the story of, of Judah and Tamar, I hope that you, you at least do grasp the contours of this story. It's a really good one from, from our Old Testaments. Um, but it, it's not just an interesting story, right? It's also a powerful story. And the reason for that is because our lives also need this kind of breakthrough of grace. Judah's story is a story of every sinner saved by the breakthrough of God. Judah recognizes that he is broken, that he is a sinner, that he is on this path of destruction, and that is exactly who we are apart from God's grace. You see, Judah's story cries out for redemption, and Judah's story cries out for Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, the one who will come to save those who cannot save themselves. Tamar in this story, you know, she's not just a mother of Jesus in his genealogy. She is one who points to Jesus. First of all, she's the scapegoat in this scene, isn't she? As much as there is, is, is culpability and guilt of her own, and of course there is, the story is told in such a way that the point is that she is being punished for Judah's wickedness. And so where Judah cries out for Jesus, Tamar points us to him. She points us to her future son, right, who has no culpability. Jesus is perfectly righteous and just, and he is dragged out because of the wickedness of others. Though he is perfectly righteous and just, he will be punished for our wickedness and sin. And I love where the parallel ends, right, because Tamar goes out before Judah with his stuff, and she says, do you recognize these things? And you could really say that Jesus comes out in front of us, the wicked, and he says, do you recognize your sin? But he does not hand it back to us, does he? He says, I'll keep it. And he puts it on his own shoulders where he is punished for our wickedness. It's amazing, isn't it, that Tamar shows up in the lineage of Jesus because this is what Jesus' kind of people are like. Tamar and Judah, they're unsavory. Uh, they, don't, they don't fit the Hallmark Channel Christmas movie marathons that are going on right now, right? You can't imagine a modern retelling rom-com of, uh, of Tamar and Judah. There are no precious moment scenes of a little Tamar handing the, the staff back to Judah that you could put next to a nativity display. This is at least PG-13 material. I could sense some of you parents starting to sweat just from reading the Bible, right? But this is what Christmas is about. Jesus entering a world of broken families, including his own. 
Jesus entering a world of broken men. Jesus entering a world of the downtrodden and mistreated. He enters a world of sin where every effort to clean ourselves up only expands that snowball effect of sin in our lives. Christmas is a story of another child who breaks through. And we are left to recognize, to identify, and to behold the one who has come. Genesis 38 is what Christmas is all about because it's about a rescue. Tamar is in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Not just with her uncomfortable baggage, but she's a picture of Jesus, not only as the scapegoat, but as the rescuer. She has rescued the line of Jesus because Judah was on a pathway of destruction and her bold action was part of the rescue story of this man. And so Tamar is a rescuer and that's what Christmas is about. That's what Advent anticipates. It's about a king not for those who don't not for those who don't fit. He's a king for those whose lives are a mess. Jesus is king for the Judas of the world on their paths of destruction and he's for the Tamars of the world forsaken and cast out. And so if you're saying this morning that my life isn't neat and tidy, Jesus is for you. If you say you can barely hide everything that's going on, Jesus is for you. One of the most powerful messages we can glean this time of year is to remember that the incarnation of our Lord is first of all a judgment. It is a judgment on our inability to do anything of worth to save ourselves. He had to go all the way, and he did. It's a message of God saving the unsavable. And friends, this story is a message of another better son breaking through in grace. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this, this morning is not just that we, we, we grasp a, an Old Testament narrative better. It, it's not just that we would have a, a, a better understanding of, of the Bible. That's all valuable. You have to have the content to understand um, how you reveal yourself, how it points us to Jesus and what you have done for us. And yet my prayer is that we would be able to see the power of, of this story for our lives here and now. Um, that, that we would see ourselves in, in Judah, in his brokenness, in his inability to clean himself up. Lord, that we would see the lion of Judah, the one who has come as the rescuer of his people. Lord, would we cast ourselves on him would we be so grateful uh, for the provision that you have made for us? Would we, we, would we be reminded in this time of year, especially that can be kind of soaked in nostalgia and soaked in kind of a uh, utopian kind of make-believe idea of family, uh, kind of utopian make-believe idea of hometowns and of, of, of trying to get back to this kind of Edenic state which never really existed. Lord, we're reminded that this time of year kind of reminds us of the messiness of the world that, that you, Jesus, entered into? And would Tamar and Judah just be one more example from your word um, that reminds us of the stakes of your coming, that reminds us of the redemption that you alone have brought? 
And so, Lord, we give you thanks. We pray that you would seal this word to our hearts, that we would be changed in mind and will and desire and action by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.